Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. We've been making our way through this book of Mark, looking at, a, at the story of Jesus. He walked on this earth for 33 years, and for three years, he had an increasingly large public ministry. But when it came time to write the story of his life, the, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they each focus in only seven days of his life. If you were to take all four gospels and put them together... What you would discover is that one-third of those pages, of those paragraphs, of, of those sentences, is focused simply on the last week of Jesus' life. Now, we've been studying that last week for about four to six weeks, all the way back to the beginning of, De- of December. And now, today, we come to the climax to which everything Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are writing about. His death on the cross in our place. And again, a third of it is focused on that week. But what happens is there's only one chapter or a half chapter, depending upon the gospel that you're you're looking at, that describes what we're going to look at today as he is beaten and he's led to the cross and as he dies on the cross. And I want you to, to invite you to look at that passage in Mark's gospel. We're going to take a look at it, and I really want to look at two sides of a coin here. First, I want to look at the theology behind the death of our Lord. I mean, what does the Bible teach us about why he had to die? And why there was no other way for us to have redemption from sin? But the other side, at the end of the message, I want to flip to the application of it. Because if not only, it's not only our pathway to salvation. Jesus said, you know, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But it's also, there's a calling in there that I'm going to point out to you about how you and I are to live our lives as we're out in the marketplace when we are representing God and wherever it is that he has assigned us. What I found is that if you just study theology, if you just understand why he had to die and exactly what was going on and, and, and don't necessarily live a, a life that honors Jesus, you can become a very arrogant Bible nerd. Ever, ever met one of those people? But the flip side is, if we, we can also look at Jesus as simply a, an example, a, a great teacher who teaches us how to love and how to live a good life and all of that. And if we do that, we can completely and totally miss what the Bible is, try, is trying to say about why he had to die and why everything focuses and climaxes in the cross. And of course, the validation, the validation of his entire ministry, his entire life, and of the cross is the resurrection, which we're going to talk about next week. So really, this could be, this could be a rather lengthy single sermon, both of them together, but we're having to break them up for the, for the sake, of, sake of time this week and next week. Today we're in Mark chapter 15, and I'm going to pick it up at verse 16. And we've seen over the last few weeks and the hours before this, Jesus has, has gone through what is known as the Last Supper there in the upper room with his disciples, where he takes the Passover meal that, that's always pointed to to God's deliverance, and he said, this meal has historically always been pointing forward to me, 
All these traditions, all these symbols that, that you Jews have been, have, been, have been following and that you've been embracing, they're pointing forward to what I'm about to do for you. This bread is my body. This wine is my blood, which is going to be shed for you. And then at the end of that, Judas goes off to, to betray him. Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with, with the guys and asks them to stay and pray with him. And he comes, he's arrested, as we know, after Judas leads him to him there in the garden. And he's taken to the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish council. And they're meeting, and they have kind of a kangaroo court there, a bogus trial, if you will. And he's asked if he really claims to be the Son of God. Well, 83 times in the gospel, Jesus does claim to be the Son of God. And so he says, yes, yes, I am the Son of God. And they consider that blasphemy, so that's punishable by death under the law of Moses. But they cannot carry out the death sentence because they're under Roman occupation. And Romans said, you can't carry out capital punishment on your own. So they say, okay, we'll turn him over to the Romans. And so last time we saw that he was brought before Pilate. And Pilate said to the, said to the Jews, really? This guy's done nothing, certainly nothing worthy of death. Why don't you just let me release him? They No, 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 we don't want you to release him. We want you to release another prisoner. It's Passover, release Barabbas. And Barabbas, as we described ago, was an insurrectionist. He was basically a, a home, homeland terrorist. And he had led a rebellion against Rome. And so Barabbas was released, and Jesus was turned over to the soldiers to be taken off and crucified. And that's where we pick it up there in verse 16. It says, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. So it starts off with a, with a mocking and with a beating. Then it moves to the crucifixion as Jesus is forced, as was the custom, to carry the crossbeam of his own cross to the place of his death. But after a whole night of the beating and what he'd been through and all that, he physically cannot do it, and so he collapses on the way. And in verse 21 it says, A certain man from Cyrene, this is in northern Africa there, Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So they conscripted this man. The Roman, Romans could do this. They could, they could just pick any passerby, any person that's standing around on the street and, and force them to do something for Rome. And so they said, you're going to carry the cross. And so Simon carried the cross for Jesus to Golgotha. Now notice that we're not only given Simon's name here, but we're also told that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And I believe this points out a couple of things. Now, when you read the Bible, you are reading real books and real letters about real people in real time. This is history, folks. This isn't just religious history. This is real, it's factual history. And I believe that Mark threw in those two names because he knew that his readers would know who these guys were, Rufus and Alexander. They probably became followers of Jesus, either because they observed what had happened on that day, or they heard their father's stories about it. And they most likely were prominent members of the early church. Mark continues in verse 22. He says, They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. 
dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each one would get. Now when they got there, right before they nailed him to the cross, they offered him this, this, this wine mixed with myrrh, and it, was, it had kind of a narcotic effect. It, it, would, it would deaden the pain, but Jesus refused it. He refused to deaden the pain of the cross that he was going through. But Jesus, because he was going to step forward and take that pain on your behalf and on my behalf, he refused to do anything that would lessen it. He was taking the full brunt of what was due to you and to me. In verse 25, it was the third hour. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and and build it in three days, come down from the cross and, and save yourself. So the mockery continued for him. They're telling him, come on, you can, it ought, that ought to be easy for you if you can tear the temple down and rebuild it. You ought to be able to come down off that cross. Verse 31, in the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this, this king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And then we pick up with God's wrath and God's judgment at Jesus' time of death. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. And one man ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and takes him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. And Mark tells us that at that moment, the curtain in the temple, the curtain that marked off the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, the curtain that only the high priest could go behind one day of the year, and only after a a very um, involved ritual could he do this. That curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in the front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Now, when we began our study of Mark over 15 months ago, I told you that Mark was writing primarily to a Roman audience. He was trying to help them understand that Jesus is not just the Messiah for the Jewish people, but he was the Savior of the entire world, and that includes the Romans. And Mark starts out his gospel with this first sentence. that says, the beginning of the gospel or good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And everything points over and over. We've been pointing it out as, we, as we've gone week to week um, looking at this. People are forced to make a decision when they see his miracles, when they hear his teaching. They have to make a decision. Is he who he claims to be or is he a fraud? Are we going to kill him or are we going to crown him? And here at the very end, it hits its climax where not just anyone, but a Roman centurion is making the declaration, surely this was the son of God. Now he's using the word was because Jesus is dead, but we know what happens three days later, amen? Now here's what I want to do. We've looked at the story, 
I want to step back, and as I said, I want to deal with the theology of it, uh, the doctrinal teaching about salvation, how, about how we are made right with God, and why we cannot be made right with God any other way, why this is the price that Jesus had to pay, and why it's a, a price that we can never, never pay ourselves. So if you haven't yet, I encourage you to take your life notes out, follow along, there's some fill-in-the-blanks there and some stuff to help you take notes. Why it's a price we can never pay. First of all, we need to understand that we are all condemned to die. 100%, okay? No one makes it out of here alive. Yeah, there were a couple exceptions in the scriptures. We, that's, those are exceptions. But we are all condemned to die at some point. It's a consequence of us living in a sin-fallen world and our own personal sin. You see, death was not part of God's original plan for mankind. Death came about after Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They partook of the fruit that God told them not to eat. And then God kept them from from eating from the tree of life because he didn't want them to be in that fallen state forever. He put an angel there, we're told in the book of Genesis, to guard the tree of life so they couldn't eat that and, and, and be in a fallen state forever. But there was no death before the sin of Adam and Eve. There, and there will be no death in heaven. Death is actually Satan's last shot. And the thing about Satan is every time he gives us his best shot, he ends up shooting himself in the foot. May I point out that you know, what we call Good Friday is in reality damnable Friday. It was a great victory on that day for the enemy, for Satan. You know, having no idea that three days later Jesus was going to pull off Easter. Satan was going to be turned on his head. And that's the reason why we recoil against death. It's why we pray against terminal disease. It's, it's the reason that most of us fear death is because it literally, when it was Good Friday or that Friday, it seemed like Satan had won. It ain't over until it's over, though, because Sunday is coming. And as damnable Friday becomes Good Friday, we hear on earth, we say this person has died, but the angels in heaven say this person is finally alive if they're in, if they're in Christ. We are all condemned to die, and it's because of our sin. I want you to see a few verses that speak to this. and The, the first is Romans 3.23. Romans 3.23 says, For some have sinned. Is that what it says? All. What does all mean? All, like all y'all? It means all, okay? I was raised in the South. We say that down there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a universal human experience for every single one of us, whether we want to admit it or not. There's some people that don't admit that they're sinners. There's some people that don't admit that they need a Savior. But that doesn't change the fact that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 5.12 says this. It says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men and women, because all sinned. There's a sense in, when, in which we are born sinners. You understand that, don't you? There's a sense in where we're all born sinners. You know, con- consider little kids like those three beautiful grandkids of mine that we had. They're beautiful, aren't they? Hey, I, I think so. That, you know, you don't have to teach them to, to, to be snotty. You don't have to teach, those, teach kids to, uh, to, to lie, to, to be selfish, to, to, to pick on their brothers or sisters. Uh, none, of, none of you had problems with your brothers and sisters, did you? Okay. I'm the oldest. I like, I like being the oldest in my family. No, we're born with a propensity to put ourselves as the center of the universe. We're born with a propensity to take from others and, and give to ourselves. We're born with a propensity to, to run our own life 
and not let God run our life. And that's how we are. And that's called sin. So I can, I can imagine some would want to stand before the Lord and say, well, Lord, I, I just can't help it. You know, I was born that way. I'm a descendant of Adam and Eve. And every son and, and daughter does this. But here's the problem. We're not only born as sinners. We choose sin with our eyes wide open. There's not one of us that hasn't made decisions to the harm of others or the harm to ourselves that are contrary to what God teaches us with our eyes wide open, knowing that what we were doing was wrong, but yet we do it anyway. The Apostle Paul, you know, one of the greatest uh, church planners, one of the greatest evangelists in, in history, he talked about this. In Romans chapter 7, he said, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the, the bad that I don't want to do, do, and he just said, man, and he just comes down to the point, well, thank God for Jesus. Thank God for the cross that takes care of this because I keep trying to do and it's hard. I can't do it on myself. And when we do this, at that very moment, we have committed high treason against the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings, the Creator, the, the, the Master of the entire universe. And our life is stained. It's stained with sin that cannot be in the presence of a holy God. So something has to be done about it. Now, Romans 6.23 has some good news and some bad news there. It says, for the wages, how many of you like wages? How many like getting paid when you work, okay? Okay, the wages of sin is death. As I said, all have sinned, we all deserve death. But the gift of God, in other words, it's not something that we can earn. And there's some people in the church and there's some faith, some religions that teach that you can earn it. No, it's the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's a price that we could never pay because we're all condemned to die. Secondly, there's nothing we can do to fix it. You and I cannot take away the death sentence we're under with a sudden shift. If all of a sudden we, you know, we, we, we live like we think Billy Graham lived or Mother Teresa. I mean, everybody likes to hold them up, but guess what? They were sinners too. And without Jesus, Billy Graham and Mother Teresa would not be in heaven. We can't take this death sentence and, and, and just be good and then, uh, and, and then, and then earn our way into, into, into Jesus' presence, into God's presence, because it's all still stained by our sin. Now, some of you may be sitting there and thinking, well, you know, you know, I know what runs through people's heads. Some people may be saying, well, why does God have to be so harsh? Why can't he be nice? Why can't God be like, like Mr. Rogers? Everybody, everybody loves Mr. Rogers, right? Don't worry, hold on to that, because we're going to get to it in a minute. The problem is, as you jot these things down, we're not only condemned to die, you know, not only is there nothing we can do to fix it, but the problem is also our sin is way worse than what we think it is. Our sin is way worse than what we think it is. Under that point, I want you to write this down. I didn't put it on your life notes, but, but put, there was literally no other way to remove it. There was literally no other way to remove it. It's like that, that just pesky stain that you get in your, in your perfect white dress shirt. And there's just no way to get that stain out. Just, you can try everything you want. You can try grandma's spray, uh, spray stuff or, or a bleach Tide pen or other things like that. But you still can't get that stain out of that white shirt. There's no other way to remove the stain of sin other than through Jesus Christ. And Paul talks about this in Galatians 2.21. He wrote there, he says, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What's Paul saying is that if, if, if you could follow the whole law and get righteousness, then why did Jesus die? 
If there was another way that we could, that we could earn it on our own. And, and in Galatians, Paul's talking against that because that's what the, that's what the Jews were teaching. Is they just got to follow the law, follow the law, do the sacrifices, do this, be a good Jew, and then you can, you can get in God's good graces. And Paul's saying, you know what? I, I turn to Jesus. I don't turn to all these other kind of things because I'm not going to set aside God's grace, God's unmerited favor. And this is the reason. It's because if a path of righteousness was available, then Jesus wouldn't have had to have died. He would have died for nothing. Think about it. If there's any other way that, any other way when Jesus was in the garden and he was crying out to the Father three different times, sweating, as we're told, as, as if it were you know, great drops of blood, saying, Father, if there's any other way to take this cup from me, if there was another way and God didn't do it, would, would you agree? We've got, we got a pretty sadistic God. And that's not in, in keeping with the character of God as we, as we read in the Scripture. The reason Jesus stepped forward and said, okay, let us go, is because he understood that as horrific as what he was getting ready to go to, not just the physical death, but the spiritual separation from the Father, the fury of hell and God's judgment and wrath, if there was any other way, he wouldn't have gone there. He pleaded to the Father, but there was no other way. And it's because our sin is so much worse than what we think. We think, oh, well, I'm better than, we can like to compare ourselves. If we're better than our neighbor, or if we're better than that guy from Washington State that was arrested, you know, recently, you know, for the, for the murders of those four, four girls. We think, okay, I'm not, I'm not that bad, so, so God's got to give me extra credit, and that's going to put me over the top. It doesn't work that way, folks. I can't just balance out the scales with, with good behavior. We're told in Isaiah 64 that even our righteous acts, our good stuff, is filthy rags in God's sight. Because we have a tendency to look around and think, well, if I'm more moral than this next guy, then, then God must be pretty impressed with me. Because I don't understand the stain of sin in my, in my own life. Because we end up thinking, well, our sin is not as big a deal as that, that, other guy, that other guy's sin. The weird thing is that in our heart of hearts, I think everybody is born with a sense of justice. When, when, when there's an unfairness done, a two-year-old, you take a couple two-year-olds, you take kindergarten class, they will understand if one kid gets a bigger piece of the pie than the other kid. They have an innate sense of justice. We, we all have, have that because none of us feel that we, none of us minimize it when, when those things are done to us and we feel that we've been received injustice. None of us, when we, when we have someone who's been slandering us or, or gossiping about us or, or doing whatever, none of us feel like, well, okay, that's, a, that's not just them. That, that's not only them. It's, a, it's okay. It's only sin. None of, none of you, if you ever owned a business and, and had money taken by an employee or, or someone did something unethical in your business or sued you uh, unjustly, something like that, none of us go, well, it's okay. They grew up in a dysfunctional family, and I'm just going to... No. We, in our heart of hearts, we expect justice. And we see, this, uh, we see the evil of sin when it's done to us. We just don't see it when we do it to others. Our sin is, is far worse than, than we think it is. This leads us to the next point. God's wrath isn't arbitrary, it's necessary. God's wrath is not arbitrary, it's necessary. We've all thought of this sometime. You know, when you're reading through the, the Old Testament books, the conquest of Canaan, I've known people that quit reading the Bible when they come to those passages. They just say, oh, God just couldn't be that way. God told them to wipe these people out. That just, you know, my God would never do that. Well, they're not thinking about the God of the Bible, because the God of the Bible did that, because these people weren't just worshiping idols, which 
first commandments tell you, you know, don't have any other gods before me. That's like numero uno. But these people were also sacrificing children and doing other, other things. And that's why God had to, had to tell Israel to, to wipe them out, to get rid of them, wipe them off the face of the earth. But most of us, you know, we think, man, that seems harsh. We're looking at it through, through 21st century lenses there. The world, over the history of the world, has been a pretty harsh place, harsh place to live. But because we have this sense of, well, you know, if I was God, I think I'd find another way. As if we're smarter than God. And there really is another way. Because what we're really saying is, well, if I was God, uh, the judgment on sin wouldn't be anywhere near as great. It wouldn't, uh, it, because I don't think sin is as great as it, as it is. But I also want you to understand and know that if you were God, then we would have a universe without justice. Because as I said a few moments ago, we all want mercy when it's for our failures. But when something horrific is done to us, we definitely want justice. And it would not be a world of, of holiness and justice if people got away with things. I'm talking about serious stuff that all of us have done to create damage and to, 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 to deeply hurt other people. It has to be taken care of. So God's judgment, his wrath and hell come. But these weren't originally intended for human beings. In Matthew 24, he tells us, or 25, chapter 25, he says, Jesus is talking at the great judgment. He's saying, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for whom? The devil and his angels. The eternal fire was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. Satan and the third of the, of the, of the angels that rebelled against God when Satan led the rebellion. And so those of us human beings who rebel against God and refuse Christ, we get the same judgment they do. But it was prepared for them originally. Now I want you to write down, jot down two things about how life works here. Two things to keep in mind because we sometimes ask, well, if God knew this was going to happen, why didn't he stop? And I think that's a, that's a valid question. It's, it's, a, it's a just question. Well, the first thing is, without genuine freedom to choose, we are nothing but robots. We have free will. And without freedom to choose, we would just be robots. Secondly, without consequences for sin, God would not be just or holy. He has to punish sin. It's in his character. He has to, else he would not be a just, a righteous God. Without freedom to, to literally sin, I'm just a piece of software. I'm a machine. I'm a robot. And without consequences for sin, God is not holy. And that's why we find ourselves in this, in this mess and in this, this need for, for a savior. But did you know that the foundation of the world, all the way back to the beginning, God knew that something was going to happen. He knew that something was going to go wrong. And 1 Peter, which we studied that book before we studied, started studying Mark, in 1 Peter 1, verse 19 and 20, it says that Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. You see, God is outside of time. God is, is not limited by, by, by temporal space like, like we're limited. So God, even before the foundation of the world as we know it, he made provision. He made provision for our sin as the Son was going to come into the world, the Lamb of God, to receive the penalty for, for our sin. And that's why Jesus' death in our place is the only solution. Jesus took our punishment so that we can share his blessings. The word gospel, we, we throw it around, we mention it over and over, and basically it just means good news, and the gospel is good news. When I'm on death row and someone's going to take my place, I tell you what, that's good news. Would you agree? 
You know, it is good news. And at its core, its most, in its most simplistic sense, it's simply a message of substitution. Your price and mine has been paid by Jesus. That's the gospel at its core. He paid what we could never pay. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Paul goes on, he says, this isn't our own righteousness. This is Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us. It's imputed to us. He paid the price so that we could have his blessings. He paid our price so that we could have his blessings. And that's the theology of the cross in a nutshell. And from the beginning of time, everything has pointed to that. God gave the law, and he, and he, and he, he was trying to show them, he was pointing forward to Jesus, uh, what Jesus was going to do on the cross. The theology of, a cro- of the cross is not an option. It's not an option. Jesus was the sacrifice that all those other sacrifices pointed toward. And it's not a story to make us feel good. It's not just to show us what sacrificial love looks like. It's absolutely completely necessary in a world where we understand the evil of sin, the righteousness of God, and his heart of love, not his heart of wrath. There are going to be people, though, that spend an eternity apart from God, but they have to do so by going over the dead, now resurrected body of Jesus. Now, before we leave, we need to look at the application of this. We need to talk about what this means about how you and I should live our lives day to day. And here's the thing. You and I would never fully understand how God is calling us to live in grace and mercy if we didn't fully grasp the grace and mercy that we have received. Does that make sense? You know, if it's just an example, there's lines to be drawn about how far I, I, I take this. So let's shift gears to the price that could never be paid to the example we can and must follow. Because Jesus not only changed our lives, but he, came, he became sin so that we could experience his righteousness and live the life that God wants us to live. So the first thing to jot down in terms of the example is this. Don't retaliate. Trust God to bring about justice. 1 Peter 2, verse 21 in your life notes, I've, I've put in the, the scripture in there. There's some words that you should underline there. It says, to this you were what? To this you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. Circle the word called and circle the word example there. An example that you should follow in his steps. This is not a suggestion from God. This is our actual calling in Jesus as as, as we claim to be Jesus followers. When Peter wrote this, he was writing to the persecuted church. And every single one of the chapters in in that letter was talking about the fiery trials that they were going through. They were going through oppression. And Peter kept pointing and saying, Follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. Don't retaliate. You were called to this. And our calling is because Christ suffered, leaving us an example to follow. So what did he do? He called us to live righteously. It says in verse 22, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why did he do it? So that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Our sin problem has been healed through his righteousness. I don't know about you, but following his example here, for me, is a lot easier said than done. Would you agree when someone cuts you off on the freeway? 
when someone swoops into the parking space that you've been waiting for for five minutes or, and you've been you know, trying to get a parking space there, when someone reneges on a promise made to you or when someone lies to you or, or someone lies about you, I don't know about you, but I'll be honest, I, I want to retaliate. I want to get back at them. It's, 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 a, it's a natural thing. It's, it's, it's in our nature. But we have re- received so much grace and so much mercy completely unmerited, a price that we can never pay. And he's saying, remember the gift that God has done. Remember what God has given you. And it's easy, very easy to, 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 to miss this. And so he's saying, you know, follow the example of Jesus. Follow the example of Jesus. Walk in it. Walk in every way to bring glory and honor to him. I love in the Old Testament the stories of Joseph and Genesis and then Daniel in, in the book that's named after him. Both of these guys served godless leaders and they kept getting promoted because they were, they were men of integrity and they returned good for evil. They kept returning good for evil. If they hadn't done that, they wouldn't have risen to the place to where they did, where they had the influence that they did. Romans 12 verses 14, 17 says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Do not repay who? Anyone. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. He goes on and says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. You and I cannot control every single situation. But if you can live with peace with someone, live at peace with them. Because of the mercy and grace that you've received so that you could have peace with God. And then in verse 19 Paul continues, says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And then the last thing that I want you to jot down in your life notes. Simply give back what we've received. At the end of the day, that's what we're called to do. The Lord is asking for us to extend the same mercy and grace that he extended to us. And, and, and many of you, you know, I, I don't know about you, but I've been betrayed many times in my life. I've been lied about, you know, stabbed in the back, and, and all these situations unfairly treated. And I know that many of you have, have probably had that happen to you in spades far more than anything Louie and I had done to us. And in every one of those situations, we have a choice to make. And I'm telling you, my, my, initial, my initial reaction usually isn't the godly reaction. Usually I want to get even with that person. I want to defend myself. I want to say, well, wait a minute. But God says, let me handle it. Let me repay. And the reason we can do this amazing thing of returning good for evil is because Christ died for us so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but actually freed so that we can live with his righteousness. The question I have for you this morning, the challenge question is, will you follow Jesus' example? And I want to encourage you this week to reflect on two things. The magnitude of your sin and the magnitude of God's grace. The theology of it. But I also want to encourage you to, to ask a simple question. Say, Lord, is there, is there an area in my life where you want me to give of what you've given me to someone else? You've given it to me so abundantly. Is there someplace you want me to take an ounce of that and extend it to someone else, the grace and mercy, so that I can be more like Jesus? Let's be men and women who represent him well, because this is what we're called for. What a story.
Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.